0: But if my birth is a thermodynamic miracle, you could say that about anyone in the world. Yes, the world is so full of people, so crowded with these miracles that they become commonplace and we forget. I forget. We gaze continually into the world and it grows dull in our perceptions, yet seen from another vantage point, it may still take one's breath away.
1: Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is Cliff Fluitt, who is an attorney. He is an attorney in the United Kingdom. He focuses on music and artificial intelligence and technology. He's a general advisor to startups that use music and tech and Bitcoin. I know you're into crypto, blockchain, all that stuff that I do not understand. And he is like just a generally brilliant guy. We met in Dubai at a conference. So, you know, he's legit because we were in the Arab world together. And that's, I think, the mark of legitimacy. <laughs> Cliff, I think it's safe to say that we were basically best friends for three days. We met at this conference and we were pretty much inseparable for three days. Well, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And the bars where we drank were some of the seediest places we've been and
1: some of the highest places I've been. Yes, we definitely found some seedy bars in Dubai that were simultaneously fancy and kind of shady. So I wrote Cliff and asked him to be on this podcast. And I don't remember how we arrived at this book, but it was such a brilliant choice. The book we're talking about is Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And I think we had both read it. I'm sure I'd read it, but it was, I mean, years ago. I mean, I probably read it in, you know, early aughts and I loved it. You know, it's a seminal book. I haven't seen any of the movies or anything that came out about it, but I love it. So Cliff, what made you pick this book for us?
0: Thank you for the invitation, by the way, Lucas, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to pick this book was I always think that a book club, it's always good to give people a sense of who you are and also a sense of something they haven't heard before. And I thought this would do both, which is sort of give people a sense of a book they may have heard of but never read. And also, this will be the first time I've ever spoken publicly about my love for this book.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Also, I should tell, I mean, everybody who listens to this podcast knows there are spoilers. This book's been out for almost 40 years. If you haven't read it now, you're not going to read it. We're going to talk about it as if everybody's read it, but you should absolutely read it. It's amazing. So you're a big Watchmen fan. When was the first time you read it?
0: The first time I read it. So using Dr. Manhattan speak, I am 14 years old, my brother arrives back and hands me two US comic books from a new US style comic book store, which opened in the UK. So you guys are used to comic book stores growing up. They were very, very rare in the UK. In fact, there was only one in the West of London. My brother went and he picked up two comics and he brought them back and he handed them to me. One was a book called The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. And one was issue one because it was originally 12 comic books of Watchmen. Now, In music terms, if you'd never heard music before, and then someone handed you Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, and the other one was "Sgt. Pepper. I mean, literally two of the most cynical, sorry, seminal, and indeed cynical, works of that time were the first two US comic books that I read. And... I went from it from there and I had to endure getting the 12 issues in real time over two years. So having to wait month by month and towards the end, we had to wait four months for issue 12 on a bit of a cliffhanger and read it and read it and read it. And ever since then, over the last 37 years, I've read it several times a year, every single time. And I mean, every single time I find something completely brand new about it. And it is simultaneously geeky. It's beautiful. The meaning of life is in there. Literally tells you the meaning of life. It is a set of time. It's a treatise of ethics and politics and metaphysics and Freudian archetypes and Jungian archetypes. And at the same time, it's a damn good read as well. And It's very interesting when you hand it to people now, many of the styles, the idea of what if superheroes were real or what would their real effect be or how do you get into their heads, this was all new. And all of the storytelling tropes, if they look strangely reminiscent of what people like Damon Lindelof did on Lost, that's no coincidence. And in fact, I was watching Lost the first time thinking, this is really like Watchmen. And then there was one episode when a guy called Henry Gale, who appeared for two episodes, arrived in a yellow balloon, and a yellow balloon was draped across a tree, and then a red bit of mist went over it. And I went, "Shit, the (laughs) best. This has been written by a Watchmen fan, of course, Damon Lindelof, who won, I think, something like 12 Emmys for his Watchmen TV show, which is incredible, beyond all words. It is absolutely incredible, and probably my favorite televisual work as well. When you realise how much it's been poured over, how much it's been copied, how much it's been badly done, the extent it's been riffed on as well. This is in Time magazine's 100 best novels of the English language. That's not graphic novels, that's novels full stop in the English language. And it's like a bit of a club when you find a fellow Watchmen fan or, you know, it's a bit like a Spinal Tap fan. There'll be a stray reference somewhere and you'll know fellow geeks. So there you are. There's my short answer to your very long question.
1: (laughs) I love it. So I was struck when I was reading it, because I read it, I think I was probably in my 20s. I read this issue of it. I read all 12 of them bound, they had already come out. And I remember being struck by how good it was, like just how good the writing was when I read it the first time. But it really hit me this time. And Alan Moore's I mean, just the chops he has as a writer, the different characters he inhabits, the different styles that he inhabits flawlessly. As a writer myself, it's almost annoying. I mean, it's frustrating. He's so good. If I could write one style as well as him, I think I'd be a New York Times bestseller.
0: So at the time, Alan Moore was sort of a bearded wonderkind from Northampton, a place in the UK you'll never heard of and you certainly never want to go. But at the time, he was starting to do, and he was starting to write this series of articles called Alan Moore's Writing for Comics. And literally, he was just given the opportunity by DC Comics write anything for these bunch of characters called the Charlton characters. You can write anything you want. And he basically just said, I'm just going to show you every single fucking trick that is possible from this medium that is not possible in any other medium." I am going to use text, I am going to use speech, I am going to use transitions. I am going to hold the camera in a way that audiovisual can't. I am going to allow things to move in the scenes. I'm going to flash forward and flash time. I'm going to play with colors. The whole color palette uses a completely color palette different from any other comic book. It's an ugly palette. The browns are horrible browns, the greens are horrible greens, the yellows are garish. And what he does with marrying together the artwork, text, the way it's written, and I will send you and anyone that's listening and interested as well, to Google a script of Watchmen. So if you write a comic book normally, a script for a 20-page comic book is 20 pages. The average script length for Watchmen is 135 pages.
1: For 20 pages?
0: Yeah, per issue. There are panels that have three densely typed, all in one way, almost as if written by Rorschach in his journal, describing every single transition. And when you study film, as I'm sure you have, you're told nothing in frame is a choice. But when you can draw anything and you are told absolutely everything, that the sugar cube will pay off in two years' time. When you're told that these candy bars, these versions of M&Ms, when the guy who's holding the end of the world is Nicene, what he must look like, how he must walk, how he must talk, how he must feel, length and depth of his footprints are all laid out in the script. It's It's insane. But at the same time, it is like a Swiss watch, the whole damn thing and not just episode four, which of course is very specifically set up like a Swiss watch and indeed demonstrates, not only do we understand how John Osterman sees time, but we understand how his father's draconian upbringing has made him so focused upon order and passivity and rendered the omnipotent man impotent like a puppet who can just simply see the strings. When you've got a nine panel grid, so rigidly structured, you've got 12 episodes which represent 12 hands on the clock and the clock moves with every single one with complete and utter precision, yet has that density and complexity. Honestly, I do not know a book like it.
1: I mean, that brings up so many questions, and I think we should have done one podcast episode per Watchmen episode, but we could talk about Chapter 4 for hours. If you're a human being and you want to read something that will blow your mind, Watchmen Chapter 4 will take you 20 minutes to read, and it will alter your perception of reality. It's unbelievable. And one of the things that struck me, and we should talk about this more, is you're right that the structure of graphic novels makes things possible that just aren't possible in any other medium, including film. And the thing that struck me, I think, the most in this reading of Watchmen was the simultaneous storytelling. There is one point where he's telling four stories at once, and it's usually not less than two. And when it is just one, you are so focused on it. It's really an amazing device. But throughout the last four books, it really is the pirate story and the story of the end of the world simultaneously throughout the entire book.
0: But the pirate story, and again, for listeners who aren't aware of it. So the premise of Watchmen is that superheroes are real. If that were to happen people wouldn't be impressed by them. So kids in the world of Watchmen don't read superhero comics because they're everywhere. So they read pirate comics. People, for some strange reason, they have Indian food as fast food. They have electric cars way, way back. But also, because America was able to win the Vietnam War using Dr. Manhattan, Nixon manages to overturn the presidential term acts and is still the president after five terms. So you've got this macro and this micro effect of everything that goes on and really 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 delves into it and the trick of the storytelling is all achieved through the transitions where someone will extraordinarily say something or there'll be a word and it will seamlessly hand over to the next page every page hands off to the next page the last panel of one particular page will always hand on to the one in the next way and with precision and a detail that's never ever seen before and whilst chapter four is seen as everyone's sort of bedazzlement, as it were, a chapter that, in terms of pulling off nothing that no one can do, I'd pull you to chapter five, which is called Fearful Symmetry, which is all about Rorschach, which is all about the two-sided block test. Not only does it tell you how and why the life of Rorschach is so terrible, and again, it goes from a world of, if superheroes were real, it was probably through trauma, you know? So it's not Bruce Wayne seeing his parents die and then swearing vengeance. It's actually proper, genuine, horrific trauma that has led Rorschach to be who he is. Yet that book is extraordinarily structured. So the first page and the last page and every page between the two mirror each other. And when they meet in the middle, it is a splash page, which is actually a mirror image and then works backwards in reverse order.
1: Well, that's crazy. That is like a Beethoven string quartet level. It sure is. The page with Adrian Veidt is the middle one, it looks like.
0: And total mirror image in terms of the composition. There's even a slash between the two that acts as the mirror. He's up, they're down, across, across, blood in the same way. There is nothing about that. And if you turn that image around, you see a smiley face. It's all there. It's all there with the two eyes and the mouth, with the blood, etc., etc. It is all there.
1: I love it. Man. All right. So I want to talk about some of the characters. So first I should just say this because I don't know if we're going to get to it, but talking about Adrian Veidt, if you were reading this serially, even as a child, you had to know he was the bad guy immediately. And maybe you could make a case that you didn't know that he was the bad guy, but like, honestly, only villains have weird cats. So I mean, that's a tell right there. There is no good guy that has a weird cat in a comic book.
0: Yeah, and again, he's spotted stroking it early on in one of his earliest appearances. Again, you know, giving it away in the very, very, very earliest days.
1: Reading it this time, I've read it. I know that he's the antagonist. Even I was surprised. Again, you know, and that assassination attempt on him is so, you know, seems real and his assistant dies, you know, doesn't seem to care, but just hard to believe that someone would do that. But he is a very Thanos character where he's clearly the bad guy, but you can't really fault his logic. That's a great villain.
0: Absolutely. But also, back to the real villain, on a Thanos level, sort of understanding him, what is more meta than following a kid reading a comic, which, of course, is the pirate story that the kid's reading? But on your fifth reading, or perhaps your second, you realize that the guy is Adrian. The poor man who has the shark swimming towards him, who the only way to save himself is on the backs of the bodies of all of his crewmates and the only way to sail to safety. If you reread the whole tale of the Black Freighter and thinking of the protagonist of that story is in fact Adrian. That worried look on his face at the end with regard to everything being all right in the end and when John Osterman tells him nothing ever ends, that is the guy on the boat. And if you reread the Black Freighter as Adrian, you have a huge amount of sympathy and empathy for his journey.
1: Yeah, I got that. I sort of felt because of the way that it's dovetailed with his story. I really was thinking about that as I was reading it. So there's so many great characters in here. One of the things that Alan Moore is a genius at is just creating these characters that from one dialogue bubble, you know who they are, and you sort of love them. And the other thing, and I don't know if this was new, but it definitely presents more in this book than in a lot of other graphic novels I've read, but just the variety of dialogue bubbles, like you can hear Rorschach's voice, because his dialogue bubble is rough around the outside. When you first read it as a kid and you were reading it serialized, was there a character that you really empathized with? Did you have a favorite? And has that changed over time?
0: Well, it has. I mean, I think that most people love Rorschach, right? They love him. They love him. They love him. One, because he's got some of the funniest lines, dropping people down the elevator shafts or his unique way of getting information with people out of using their fingers.
1: I'm not locked up in here with you. You're
0: locked up in here with me. One of his first lines, you know, when he says, I think there's a mask killer. And they said, don't you think that's a touch paranoid? And I said, paranoid? Is that what they're saying about me now? Which is a hilarious line. (laughs) (laughs) To actually his tragedy, to him in the end, being the only one that refuses to compromise. Whereas actually one of the issues, you know, when he says that everybody else quit, everybody else did quit. People were either hired by the government, being the comedian and Dr. Manhattan. People were doing it all for the wrong reasons, Silk Spectre and Night Owl. Adrian Byte, who went and sold himself in every single sense of the word. And of course, the only person at the very end who maintains an amoral center. However, he is a product of a disturbed fascist and Randian objectivist madness. And the more you delve into him and his origins, He's an archetype with a character called, well, also known as The Question DC Comics, or Mr. A, with regard to Charlton Comics, which is all about Ayn Rand's objectivism, where there is black and there is white, there is right and there is wrong, and there is nothing in between. Silicon Valley is full of people who worship Ayn Rand, but actually, if you were to point out how Warshark thinks, that's the purest element of that at all. So on the first reading, The love is with Rorschach. But over time, people who think that is the most underwritten character, which is Laurie, actually, in retrospect, she has a beautiful story and a beautiful arc and a beautiful reckoning and understanding of who she is and what she is. And also, she ends up unlocking everything by literally getting Dr Manhattan to explain and realise that we're all worthwhile, despite how chaotic and out of control that all of us feel.
1: I identified with Froschak definitely the first time I read it, and I found myself a little bit more sympathetic for Adrian Vite this time. Strangely, I think maybe it's being a new father and like having to make my sons do things that they don't want to do, like go to the potty and pee, and they don't understand why they have to do this now. And so I don't think I'm saving the world, but I'm doing something for them that they don't see the good of it now. And I have not killed anyone. I have not murdered millions of people in service of potty training my children, but there's something beautiful about being able to identify with a villain in a book like this. And then let's talk about Dr. Manhattan, because he's clearly the most interesting character because he's the only one that is an actual superhero. My wife and I have a ongoing disagreement about this. What are your thoughts on omnipotent superheroes? I think they're awesome. My wife thinks they're boring. What do you think?
0: (laughs) Well, this is the issue. I've been showing my son superhero films and comics. And the problem with omnipotent superheroes, you kind of have to kill them. In all the X-Men movies, they tuck Professor X away because he's too powerful. Every single film, he gets incapacitated. So they're normally terribly, terribly, terribly inconvenient as a plot device. However, the amorality of John, what his background has done, and the fact that every relationship he enters into, he can hear the moment it ends at the same time the way he experiences time, the way that he's got complete and total power, yet complete and utter indifference to us as human beings. If you were omnipotent, would you be as worried about ants and the color of ants as human beings and human affairs are? And to another extent as well, the real question is, is that you are omnipotent and you can do anything, yet you are a slave to time and you can do nothing. And what extent of that, you know, the whole, the whole thing is a treatise on free will versus the ability to act. Veint is will to power, and you have a sort of Jungian stroke, you know, sort of uh, Einsteinian view of time and its constancy and relativity with the likes of Manhattan. He is extraordinary. And again, you know, sort of convention defying the first time you see him, that he's naked the whole time, that he's utterly, completely and totally uncompromised in every single way. And at the same time is given to human frailty and is given to jealousy. You know, what sends him to Mars is seeing his ex in the arms of Dan. And that duality of him and his ability as hero and non-hero. And of course, his ascension at the end to actually being so interested in human life, he's going to go off to another universe and create some. Of course, could be us. And certainly in this narrative sense as well. These to very, very interesting consequences.
1: So I think that the omnipotent superhero... I mean, the first one in comic books was probably Superman. I think Hercules is the ultimate archetype. But the thing that I find interesting about them is it's a really a reflection of our culture, specifically the American culture. And the Romans had some of this too, and the Carthaginians and all the great empires that worshipped these omnipotent strongman heroes. And it's that the only thing that holds these heroes back is in their own mind. And they're unstoppable, except for they are not able to get their heads around what they need to do, or they're not able to make the choice that they need to make. And the bad guy and the antagonist who beats them is always the person who can make the hard choice that they can't make.
0: Which is the comedian. That's another one, which is actually that both the comedian and Dr. Manhattan work for the government. They've both become fashioned as gaudy weapons. And the comedian will spray napalm and, you know, shoot people with a grin on his face, knowing the joke. And at the same time, you've got Manhattan winning the Vietnam War, where the logic of it escapes him, where he sits on a nuclear base, essentially as a weapon. He's part of the US foreign policy, who have this line, God exists and he's American, in order to maintain world peace and world power, and the ability to neutralize John is what can mobilize the Russians. All of these elements, back then he was an avatar for the Reagan Star Wars program leads to fantastic choices that are taken, that he doesn't go around and save the day, but yet he does.
1: Have you read any of the Red Sun alternate Superman universe where instead of crashing in Kansas, he crashes, you know, in somewhere in, in Russia? Or something, yeah. Or
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that, exactly.
1: <laughs> but you see, the thing is, is that for
0: anyone that reads comic books, anyone that watches TV, anyone that watches fiction, it is not possible to overstate the impact of this book, how it changed everything in comic books it changed everything in relation to popular culture and most of the people who are writing in Hollywood right now revere this book like it's the bible and I would strongly recommend you ignore Zack Snyder's movie Zack Snyder is a man who is very very visual but he doesn't understand any of these elements at all in fact he says his favorite book in the world is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand so he's the classic classic person that will misunderstand Rorschach As a hero.
1: Zack Snyder says his favorite book is... I don't want to like hate on anybody, but...
0: He's bought the rights, personally, and optioned it as a movie. This is all real.
1: Oh, man. That explains a lot about Zack Snyder for me, about his movies, because my problem with Zack Snyder is that, you know, visually... It's a matter of taste, but he's in the top five of people who make movies look amazing. Him and James Cameron. It's really incredible. But than any of his characters talking, it's like pulling teeth. And that's exactly how Ayn Rand's novels are. We could have a serious discussion about the philosophy because it is well constructed. And, you know, agree with it or not, there are stuff in there you have to address before you can move forward. But there is not a character in an Ayn Rand novel that has ever said anything remotely close to what a human would say. There's that line from A Fish Called Wanderer he says he can't be stupid because he reads philosophy. Stupid people don't read philosophy. And Jamie
0: Lee says, they do read it, they just don't understand it. <laughs> so at the point when I nearly opt and walked out of the first screening of the Watchmen movie, which sounds like you haven't seen, but there is a seminal moment in Rorschach's life when he comes up with a child murderer. And essentially what he does is he chains him to the radiator, leaves a saw two feet away from him and then sets the room on fire and basically gives him the impossible choice of black white and puts him in the impossible position yet he is given a choice in the movie because it looks cool quote Zack Snyder has the guy pick up the meat clay with which he kills the girl and stoves his head in and chops him to pieces in the movie because it looks cool and it's just like at that point you're a fucking idiot You've read this thing. You think it looks cool. You actually don't even understand it. So that's the issue. And that, of course, is one of the big issues of our time, which is people anything taking anything from a laundry list of nonsense on 4chan and then twisting it to your own understanding and own anxieties. But actually, Watchmen is so well placed, it gets that joke. There is a character called the comedian who completely and utterly gets that joke. Yet when he realises the truth, I mean, he's the closest to the modern rendition of Heath Ledger's Joker. He's an agent of chaos. He understands it. He embraces it. It makes him laugh. One is called the comedian. One is called the joker. There are no coincidences there with the way that Goya and Nolan wrote the Heath Ledger version of the joker. He's very much the comedian. But at the same time, because he gets the joke and he breaks down, he's the one who realizes that by exposing it, where he breaks down in Moloch's apartment, and understands and uncovers the whole joke and sees it all, he knows he can say nothing, which makes him virtually suicidal. And at which point, because Adrian has the apartment bugged, he comes and kills him and sets everything in motion. Everything is thought about. And this issues of ethics and philosophies and Freud versus Jung and objectivism and morality and amorality and foreign policy, it's all there in a 12-issue comic book ending in... Reparations from a new United World in response to an alien telepathic squid.
1: <laughs> I'm just going to go back to something you said about Zack Snyder and other Hollywood people not getting the joke or not getting the subtlety. And is this new? Like, is this something that has happened? Because I feel like Watchmen came from a time when people understood subtlety to a larger degree. And I don't know if this is true because it's hard to even put myself, you know, in Doctor Manhattan speak. I'm 14. I don't remember if I thought differently than I do now. It's hard to know because I only have my current consciousness, right? It used to be that people would go to books for subtlety. There's a subtlety to novels. Middle March, you know, is full of subtlety. Watchmen is full of subtlety. And films usually gloss over that subtlety or try to smooth it out. And I think that's kind of what Zack Snyder does. But in recent years with Netflix and with these long-form dramas and TV shows, they've been able to add that subtlety back into narrative media. And I feel like the public, having been deprived of it for so long, it just thinks it's like an amazing new thing.
0: I think you're right. But also, to a certain extent, we're hyper-stimulated. And to a certain extent, we've seen so much. This is where I pull the age card. But one of the things that I found extraordinarily moving about Watchmen is you're reading it as a 14-year-old kid, where literally we all thought we were going to die by nuclear fire. It is written with that terror looming over with you.
1: Right. We should say that this book was written during the Cold War.
0: It was written at the height and released at the height of the Cold War. And the nuclear clock, as evidenced by everything from the shape of the smiley face, which represents 12 minutes to midnight on a clock to counting down the whole thing, was on the basis being read in real time where we thought this thing could happen. And what is coming? You know, wish fantasies. And actually understanding the gravity of the decisions that needed to be taken and the morality being taken... And understanding that at the end, as it says, you know, if the world was to die by nuclear fire, no vestige of human life would exist in the universe, save for a plaque of Richard Nixon on the moon. There's also these wonderfully strange, extraordinary things where right next to the Argia Planeta, and it was not planned in any way, shape or form, there is a naturally occurring smiley face on Mars, which is just extraordinary. So it's a treatise on power fantasies. It's an issue on wish fulfillment. It's power and impotence. It's in relation to elements of actually to what extent are the compromises that we have to make? What are the compromises that need to be taken? I found it a very, very, very nuanced, subtle and emotional read. And everything from the nature and chaotic and angry and violent and criminal nature of Laurie's birth, leading to her reality, is literally... What is there when you can distill all human life to the thermodynamic miracle? That treatise, that breakdown of human existence and the description of it, and the fact that it is John who, at that point, is the most removed from human life, comes up with the most human of understanding. This is after she has brought down Manhattan's edifice on Mars and makes him realize. And that is what breaks his permeable bubble. And that's where he has this moment of realization when she believes her life is meaningless and he changes his mind. He does something for the first time of an act of free will. He changes it. It is not my mind changes for me. And he understands and appreciates that changing his mind and understanding her life as a thermodynamic miracle is literally the meaning of life.
1: He starts by saying, the cold, suffocating dark goes on forever, and we are alone. And this is one of the most beautiful lines in the comic book, where Dr. Manhattan describes life as the clay in which the forces that shape all things leave their fingerprints most clearly.
0: That is about fate. Yet, if you jump forward to Nine, and I'm going to quote this time, where he realizes that her life isn't meaningless. So thermodynamic miracles, events with odds so astronomical, they're effectively impossible, like oxygen spontaneously becoming gold. I long to observe such a thing. And yet in every human coupling, a thousand million sperm vie for a single egg. Multiply those by the countless generations against the odds of your ancestors being alive, meeting, siring this precise son, that precise daughter. Until your mother loves a man, she has every reason to hate. And of that union of a thousand million children competing for fertilization, it was you, only you that emerged. To distill so specific a form from that chaos of imperability is like air turning into gold. That is the crowning unlikelihood, the thermodynamic miracle. And she said, but if my birth is a thermodynamic miracle, you could say that about anyone in the world? Yes. The world is so full of people, so crowded with these miracles, that they become commonplace and we forget. I forget we gaze continually into the world and it grows dull in our perceptions, yet seen from another vantage point, it may still take one's breath away. Come, dry your eyes, for you are life, rarer than a quark and more unpredictable beyond the dreams of Heisenberg. That is the clay which forces the shape of all things that leave their fingerprints most clearly. And it's that whole setup where he comes in a complete full circle and the moment of realization, I actually own the artwork, (laughs) that's that that scene of the scene before when he comes to the realization and he has the godlike moment and sat there was four as well the moment i could afford it i found it and bought that particular page of artwork because it was so meaningful for it it hangs in my office and i see it every day
1: you are the biggest nerd i know i had no idea i warned you (laughs) i warned you so i have this question on my like maybe list because this is a nerd level 10 question are you a star trek fan also? Yeah, yeah yeah okay well then i'm gonna ask you this question is dr manhattan q and if so could he be stopped by a tachyon pulse from the main deflector dish
0: <laughs> well let's just say q arrived two years after the arrival of this book and q and q's omnipotence as it were his impolite character which is more to do in history and indeed you know with the likes of loki and the trickster and the jester and Mr. Mexiboltik and everything like that, that existed in comics before. But actually, the real question with regard to Q is his amorality and his point that it's all a game. And it has many, many, many shared. And really, really, really what it should have involved was, as he said, I mean, at the end of the day, no one could stop Adrian.
1: No one could stop. Dr. Manhattan, is he amoral? That's like, you know, asking if the weather is amoral. Is it even right to call him amoral? Because he's sort of outside of the world of morality. But until he understands that
0: Laurie is worth saving and that human life is worth saving and he changes his mind, he exercises, he goes from being a puppet who can see the strings to actually becoming a major player. But at the end of the day, Adrian's logic, as crazy and batshit as it is, and born of Alexander of Macedonia and wanting to make sure that when they met in the Hall of Legends, they had something to talk about, was on the basis that actually he would try and do and cut the gordian knot which is an extraordinary opportunity and you know as a kid made me read up about alexander the great it made me read about freud it made me read about jung it made me understand for those of you who don't know that every chapter is actually a quote that comes back to either a real life lyric a real life aphorism or a real life quote that very much relates not only to the story but the nature of the reading and background reading it makes one think and how often does that happen in any piece of fiction
1: Yeah, one of the interesting things I thought about Dr. Manhattan and Adrian Veidt is that a good portion of the book is spent by the superheroes, or at least by Laurie, trying to get Dr. Manhattan to come back and save the Earth. But in reality, the Earth was never really in any danger. Adrian had already saved the Earth. Had Dr. Manhattan come back or not, it wouldn't have made any difference.
0: Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we think that he went to the end. And of course, the answer is nothing ever.
1: Yeah. Does that say something about you know, as Dr. Manhattan is sort of like the God character and part of the cast is trying to get God to come and intervene. But in reality, humanity has saved itself by discarding their God and sending him to Mars.
0: Yeah, by sending him to Mars and that understanding of God, which is, you know, God can't save your child from having some terminal disease because actually he's omniscient and he can't do that. He is the godlike creature, but he is God and man in one. And actually, how do you square that circle And they do it narratively in a damn good yarn?
1: Man. Well, there's a lot to talk about with this book. I think we managed to scratch the surface, everybody in the world, every human being should read it. It's called Watchmen. If you read
0: the book, I strongly recommend you watch the HBO Watchmen series.
1: I'm going to watch that now. I would also say that if you read the book, I recommend you read it again, because I just reread it sort of halfway through it. I was like, have I read this before? It was just a different book. I kind of knew the broad strokes of it, but I had forgotten all of the nuance and there's so much in there. It's really amazing. So Cliff, I'm going to end by asking you the question that I end this podcast with every time, which is to recommend two books, one by a living author and one by a deceased author.
0: So my favourite book by a deceased author is Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. I think that it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. And also ends on the kind of same sort of gag that Watchmen does. There's real, real synergies and elements between them all. But I think that there's an extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary world where we can actually say to each other, you know what, this is great. This is wonderful, and I absolutely love it. And with regard to a living author, I mean, that becomes much more difficult, really. I am a huge, huge, huge fan of anything by Martin Amos. So anything by Martin Amos, I'm a very, very, very big fan of. And then also as well, just for the fellow geeks, as it were, if you have read Watchmen, having a read of Viva Vendetta, but also Alan Moore's novel, Jerusalem, which is one of the most nuts reads that you could ever, ever read. And if you like true crime, read his book in relation to Jack the Ripper, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary novel with the same level of real life, real world telling, an insane amount of research and has to be read. It's fantastic. From Hell, which was remade as a Johnny Depp vehicle. But no, read the original one. It's incredible. In terms of the prescience and the timeliness of it all, The original Watchmen book was about the Cold War and about the nature of superheroics and its infantility and the pointlessness of all of that. The Watchmen TV show was all about Black Lives Matter and masks the year before the pandemic and before George Floyd. And it is the same creepy, insane prescience. It starts with the Tulsa race riots, which is now being taught in schools simply because it was put at the heart of the Watchman TV show and goes on from there and is all about the nature of masks and what do we need and what does it mean when we as a population use masks and to have that on the year before the pandemic is just
1: cray. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Well, thank you, Cliff. Thank you for joining me and for sharing your obvious enthusiasm for this wonderful, wonderful book. And I look forward to having you back someday. We'll talk about something else.
0: We will definitely do that. Thanks so much, Lucas.
1: It's John F. Kennedy, right? In our world. Yes, Yes. in our world. In (laughs) their world. (laughs) Just want to be clear that Richard Nixon's name is not on the moon.
0: No, 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 no. But in this world, it is that. And also very, very clear that actually it was the comedian who kills Kennedy. Nixon is his boss. (laughs)